At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. As a technology, artificial intelligence is one that has fascinated experts for years now. For so long, AI was simply a buzzword, but now all that is really changing. Over the last decade, there have been immense breakthroughs in the field of machine learning and AI. These concepts have allowed machines to process and analyze information themselves in a very sophisticated manner. But with these breakthroughs, what really is the future of artificial intelligence in government? And what role can it play in national security and homeland defense? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today on this episode with James Bench, a senior principal at Maximus. In his role, James works alongside federal agencies to drive innovation and change to enhance mission performance. With these experiences, I know he's going to have some great insights to share with us today. As part of our discussion, we're going to focus on AI applications in government, especially in relation to the Department of Defense, where cybersecurity, IT modernization, and machine learning are all taking center stage. It's going to be a really exciting conversation, and I'm ready to get into it, so let's go. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate uh, being here. Before we dive into some of these topics, which I'm pretty excited about, we're going to cover some a little bit of AI, ML, go deep into uh, kind of customer experience. But before we get into that, tell the listeners a little bit about your role at Maximus and some of the things you're currently focused on. Uh, yeah, at uh, NTCS, which is our technology consulting services for, for the government, uh, I, I focus on leading programs around digital modernization and solution development. So uh, it's kind of a, br a broad space, but it ends up being things that does integrate artificial intelligence. It uses cloud, it uses modern uh, cloud management practices, software development practices, and really combines all of those together, make sure we can deploy things securely, stay secure, and, and working in all of that space. So it's a pretty broad, it, it combines a lot of the latest technologies really uh, that are available now in IT, and we use that all to really further uh, missions for our clients. That's exciting, because I know you're solely focused on public sector. One of the challenges that I've seen within within government across, across federal civilian 
defense, even at the state and local levels, is there's all this really cool technology out there in the private sector. And being able to translate value, leveraging these emerging technologies into the government mission, it, it, it seems like it's something that, that has become Everest in, in certain ways where you'd think it would be a little bit more more streamlined. Are there any technologies that you're you're really seeing great adoption on right now in terms of uh, in terms of driving that mission forward within government? What's really interesting about that is that between federal agencies, their you know appetite for adoption is vastly different. You know, some agencies are pretty far out there. You know, in their cloud journey, you know, uh, USCIS Immigration Services is pretty far out there. They're you know, a lot of using cutting edge technology is very much early adopters. There are some agencies, you know, it's taking a lot longer to kind of do that adoption. Ultimately, the adoption of the technology between, you know, cloud and, you know, modern DevSecOps practices and, you know, using a lot of the, the buzzword things that, you know, help develop more secure applications, all of that ends up being around really risk management. Uh, different agencies have different appetites for risk. Uh, a lot of them do reside as far as like kind of the controls and the governance that are around their uh, security practices. So depending on how comfortable they are, how much, you know, uh, how much depending on the information they have, if there is any, you know, um, uh, vulnerability, you know, vulnerabilities that get exploited or how much, you know, how sensitive their, uh, you know, their information is, if it gets leaked out for, you know, whatever is, whatever happens from external actors. That all of that kind of weighs into how you know how uh, what the appetite is for the technologies. I would say, as far as like what uh, where adoption is getting, you know, obviously a lot better, is that I think with some of the executive orders around customer experience, around uh, you know the um, the zero trust framework for security, uh, all of those things are really you know helping push the government into adopting a lot of the technologies around. Full stack, you know, full stack software development with built-in DevSecOps using artificial intelligence. Um, those things all help, I think, push the government forward. So there is now, I think, more openness in the last couple of years than there has been, you know, in the past and kind of adopting these technologies and strategies. So as you know, consultant technology consultants to the government, we see more appetite they want to see it and you know really in all of the in all of the requests for proposals in all of the requests for information they're all either curious because they're getting ready to or they're further along but they need to mature even further so really all of it's getting adopted more and you know i think one of our focus areas today is artificial intelligence uh, and machine learning Uh, that is definitely one of those areas where uh, more curious than used in the public sector but uh, it's getting a, it's getting embedded a lot more into the work that happens. So it, you bring a really interesting viewpoint here because Maximus is focused on just public sector. And I think you've, throughout your career, you've kind of been in these types of roles and you've seen the evolution of what government is is doing. And I, I like that you brought up risk management, right? Because anybody who who lives and breathes working with the public sector understands the risk aversion that comes with working with this space and rightfully so right they're dealing with taxpayer money they don't want to end up on the the front page of the washington post but they they also have all this data they're trying to secure but in terms of risk management we've seen from a workforce perspective we've seen some younger c-level folks come into 
into these roles and have an appetite to bring in these technologies to drive the mission forward at, I think, a more rapid rate in a different way than maybe some of these legacy leaders have. Do you think that's one of the things that is is driving some of the emerging technology adoption in the space? Yeah, it helps. I mean, you know, just from the the big macro level, you know, from more retiring baby boomers. So you're seeing this kind of shortage in, you know, in the federal space where a lot of people are, you know, re- more than past retirement age or they're staying longer or they are retiring and people are leaving. And so you see this necessity, you know, to promote younger people that have typically been in those roles. So is there appetite that like, is there more of an appetite because of that? Absolutely. Um, and what happens too, and you know, it is, it is amazing that the appetite is there, but there's also, you end up finding in the government, in the public sector, there's a lot of controls that happen too. So someone can absolutely drive and move the needle 100%, 100%. Um, but then you have, you know, the the lawyers, the regulators, uh, secure, you know, there's all of these controls and governance around to kind of temper things as well. So, you know, where we're in a lot of cases, if you really want to be, you know, forward leaning out, that could seem like uh, they're just really slowing down progress. Uh, in other ways, you know, I I look at a, a bit of both ways. Sometimes, if if you know, some of the practices are really now like it's actually doing more injustice to the to what the mission really is or what the purpose really is, then then that's a process that needs to change and be improved. Uh, in other ways, it is protection. No one wants to be on the hill trying to explain why did this happen and why did this, you know, uh, you know, um, adversary get, get access to all of this information or do something, you know, nefarious with it. So all of that is still there. There's a lot there, but I think, yeah, youth, uh, youthful leaders is absolutely helping. They're, uh, we see this more too with just a lot of the, the just the networking amongst the federal leadership mm-hmm. too. That's improving, you know. That's even better now. So they're really leaning on each other for how did you do this? How did this happen? And so I think that collaboration amongst like federal leaders is actually helping kind of lockstep move, you know, move the whole government forward. Yeah, there's. You're right. There seems to be such an appetite for collaboration now more than there there ever has. I don't know if that's new leadership. I don't know if the pandemic kind of put everybody in a position where everybody just wanted to figure out what everybody was doing to to survive some of these things, but we're definitely see the silos kind of breaking down and people wanting to reach out and, and learn from each other. And I think you brought up AI and, and ML. I think that's a, we can start there. That's a really good um, topic around the types of technology that has, I think for the most part, become mainstream. Um, especially within the private sector. But um, you mentioned that there's more of a curiosity around AI and ML within government versus an actual adoption and usage. Um, Walk me through that a little bit and kind of where you think government is and how you think they can get beyond just that curiosity phase and really fully implement this to drive, um, drive outcomes. Yeah, when we look at, I mean, there are some, you know, huge victories, I would say, you know, that the government has had, as far as, you know, the use, the use of AIML, like one of the funnest things that, you know, when you look at like your commercial use of AIML, it's, it's very seamless into into your life now, especially when you're using Alexa, you know, and all of these, you know, virtual assistants, and it's all AIML. And then when you're engaging with, you know, other, um, other vendors that you're working with, you know, Verizon, they have all these chatbots and, you know, everyone's got a chatbot and there's 
depending on their level of sophistication, they're using some AI ML inside of it. So in a lot of ways, I think as far as just, you know, a, a private citizen in the commercial space, a lot of that is kind of just happening and you almost don't even know it's happening, but it's, you're using it nearly every day. In the public sector, there's a few kind of key victories where you can see <laughs> see and touch it. Uh, one of the ones recently, I was uh, went out of country, came back in. I have global entry, and one of you know they now have you know a Dulles Airport. They have the touchless global entry, and what it's doing is it's using your facial recognition to actually identify you, and then it track and then it. It processes you in. You don't have to put in a code. You don't have to scan anything. It just takes a picture of your, you know, your face, and then it can tell who you are. That facial recognition is artificial intelligence. Probably one of the coolest examples of like, I got to use that in real life. It was a public sector offering. It is about border security, and it worked really well. It was very impressive. Um, other areas, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of the uh, you know, you saw it also in the news. It was mostly used in the commercial sector about the development of those vaccines using AIML to really process, you know, all of that information, create the variations. Uh, that happened through the use of AIML, but consequentially, all of that was actually benefited into the public sector itself. CDC has used it, um, you know, as far as like the emergency response for outbreak response for COVID vaccine safety. So it, in a couple ways, I think for you know the regular citizen, in, in a few ways, especially in the last few years, especially with COVID, whether you knew it or not, the public sector's adoption of it helped, like helped you. Yeah. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I think to your point, I think AI is leveraged best when you don't even know you're using it or you're being influenced by it or, or getting getting value from it when it's working in the background and. Um, and giving you whatever that outcome is, that to me is when it's at its best. And you had a couple of use cases you had talked about there. Are there any use cases that you think government's missing the mark on? Not that they're doing a poor job, but they haven't deployed AI in this in this environment or this use case. And if they did, it would just make things so much easier. Yeah, this is where, you know, can the technology get you there? So in, in a lot of the you know, in a lot of government, right? It, you're providing, you know, public services, you know, outside of, you know, defense where you're protecting the nation. But, you know, for a lot of the public service that's being offered, a lot of that also just requires, you know, there's an application, there's some adjudicator that needs to make a decision based on the information or the, the you know, the information they can gather about you to see if you can get this benefit from the government and stuff. Uh, could AI be used to speed up to actually make some of those adjudicated decisions, for sure, right? Uh, for where it's kind of a slam dunk decision making process, AIML could really enhance the public sector and its speed and responsiveness to kind of adjudicated benefits decisions in the public space. One hundred percent. The, however, the, there's there's a fair there's a fair reason and you know it's definitely being talked about now it's very important um the it's really around you know is there bias within the models you know is was there enough data in creating the model that it's transparent about how it made the decisions you know can you do these things in a fair and equitable way which is a built into our whole constitution uh, can it do that well problem is 
uh, AI machine learning is really as good as the data it's trained on. And so depending on the richness of the data or the diversity of information, you know, from, from, you know, the potential candidates, uh, you can have potentially some inherent bias in the decision-making. So there really needs to be ethical AI, some governance around the decision-making and it is a real problem, right? Because so, this is based on people's livelihood, you know, uh, their experiences that affect their actual lives. Um, so the weight of not doing it fairly is is a bit bigger than, let's say, uh, a marketing advertiser who's would have offered you, you know, a twenty percent discount, but the model told told you told them to give you a twenty, you know, a fifty percent discount. So yeah, you ended up with a rounding error of costs, but the implications of that is not so serious. So the government does have something to be a little bit tentative around actually making final decisions on something. Um, what it's great at, what it can definitely be more you know, used for is just really um, look, scanning through a ton of information, pointing out, like speeding up the process to give the information that you can make a decision on, to do classification, to do um, to do cluster models, you know, where you group things together so you can be like, yep, it looks like this, therefore, you know, here's a process. Um, where the end decision still has to sit with the person, um, that can speed up, that can augment the workforce tremendously. And, you know, the government right now is also having, you know, issues with just staffing, just staffing in general, you know, the the labor market's hard. Unemployment's really low. So finding people is challenging at, you know, the, the pay schedules that are made available. So it's just, it's just hard to get the people. So you see, you know, there's a backlog at the IRS, you know, there's a backlog, a huge backlog at the IRS. There's a huge backlog, uh, you know, in immigration, there's all of these backlogs because of the workforce limits. If, you know, if we use AI to augment these workforce, you could speed all of that up and still make it fair and equitable without having AI make those final decisions. You were talking about the challenges with workforce. I think another conversation around that is people having the skill set to be able to, that are already in government, that to be able to work alongside um, technologies like AI and ML, but other other emerging technologies that are out there. RPA is another one that, that comes to mind for me. Um, what have the reskilling efforts been like in government so far? And have they been effective? Because if, if you're saying that there is, and, and rightfully so, there has to be a focus around ethical AI. You can't just let it go through, make decisions, and then move on. There, there's going to have to be some human inter intervention in these situations. But do we have the, the number of people to be able to keep up with the pace at which we're expecting outcomes leveraging these technologies? So um, to me, again, it, it kind of begs the question, as, as we have these people in place and the reskilling efforts are happening, how effective are you seeing them being within the government space? Ooh, this one is a, it's, it's a real challenge if you want your data scientists to be federal employees. The reality is the market, the demand for this skill set, the demand on the commercial space, uh, the demand really everywhere for this skill set of data science to develop AI ML models is, is so high that the, in, you know, that the, the compensation, you know, that someone can get with just not even that many years of experience uh, is really high. And the 
the government is just always, it's just going to perennially have a hard time in either retaining them, even despite the investment of getting training, uh, because just, you know, the, the government pay scales just don't quite get to the levels that the market is actually, you know, paying for, for, for these people, uh, for these skill sets. I, I would say, so it's going to, it is a challenge that I would say that the public sector should probably take a little bit different of an approach for. So my, you know, my opinion on it would be, don't try to make data scientists unless it's a very specific field and a very, like very, very niche use cases to where only, you know, for whatever reason, only a federal employee can do those things. And you have to figure out a way to compensate them so they'd stay. But in the majority of cases, I think the skilling just needs to be what can AIML do, right? The training of just what is the landscape of what kind of problems can AI and ML solve today? What, what can it solve well and reliably in the way that it can be you know, made into a live system and actually do something? Versus what, what is more bleeding edge, more, wish, more wishful thinking that, that you know, like even though it's in the news that this is the latest and greatest you know, version of AI, this generative transform models that you can ask it and it creatively builds, you know, new new things, it writes code. Instead of it being able to do those things, uh, you that is not a problem you're going to try to solve in the next few, you know, five years in the public sector. So I think it's more the education, the reskilling just needs to be in the federal space needs to be just in general, what is AIML? What are the different types of models out there? How long has it been around? How mature is it? And what is the right use cases? Which is the right mission problems that it can actually solve? I think just that pragmatic approach is probably the right thing. Then, you know, then at that point, you're probably hiring a consultancy, you know, uh, to go ahead and manage the actual workforce with the skills, trying to keep up with with you know how fast technology is moving making sure people are skilled trying to manage all of those things and therefore it can be it doesn't you don't need you're not trying to manage to retain a workforce that just keeps slipping through your fingers constantly it's just just know the right application the right mission challenges and that's the education i think that makes the most sense for the federal government it sounds like a lot to really wrap your arms around though to be able to deploy these types of technologies do you think that's one of the inhibitors around adoption to obviously you need the, the skills to be able to do that um you need to be able to have the people in place but getting to that point can feel like the biggest challenge in the world do you think that's one of the inhibitors um it can be an inhibitor i you know one of the more of my early statements was you know there's a lot of like you know curiosity more than like you know deployment there's a lot of POCs happening to handle, you know, various different situations and stuff. And I think, you know, a lot of what, a lot of what I think prevents it from getting out there is really just making sure that there is um, a little bit more like that, like the understanding of like, this is something that can be rolled out broadly. It's not going to have implications around, you know, unethical, you know, potential bias that leads to like litigation. Uh, it doesn't have those types of, you know, this type of problem that we're trying to solve isn't going to be hit with those types of things. It's not something that, you know, um, you know, that the public is going to, you know, raise their arms around it. It is things that actually it's a fairly mature 
uh, field of study. It's fairly mature as far as like the problem solution set that what it can and can't do, and that we have the right data, you know, made available to actually create effective models. I think it's a lot of it's just really understanding of is this the right application of this potential technology, and is it good enough that it's ready for the mainstream, which is if you make it, you know, a live system. So I, I was going to ask you what some of the other p- potential inhibitors were to deploying technologies like this, but I w- kind of want to flip that question on its head. I mean, you've been working with so many different government agencies in being able to use emerging technologies, not just AI and ML, but but a multitude of these technologies to drive outcomes. What What's some of your advice or tips to driving successful implementations and getting outcomes quickly um, and getting buy-in across. I mean, I, that's something we haven't really discussed deep here, but obviously it's one thing to make the decision that you needed. It's another, as you're rolling these things out to get adoption and buy-in from the employees that are using it, right? That's all part of it. What are some, what, what are some tips or some advice that you have in doing things just like this? So where I've had the absolute most success it is, it, it's kind of in places where you wouldn't expect, right? When you're, when you're doing a project, you're like, okay, well, here's the business problem and I'm going to do this technology because it's, obviously it's the right fit for it and I'm going to go ahead and do it and I'm going to like, you know, get it out there, you know, into the world. Uh, and you're like, okay, great. Well, the obstacles end up not being the technical implementation. Uh, it doesn't always end up being, you know, around all of that. What it ends up being, you know, it, in a lot of cases that I've seen in the public sector is just really making sure for the the technology you've chosen, you can work, you're basically shoulder to shoulder with the, you know, with every agency, their security group, you're shoulder to shoulder to make sure that that technology will get approved so that you can use it in a production environment, that they understand what it is, that you understand how to make it secure how you can mitigate any potential, you know, vulnerabilities, trying to help. And, and a lot of it ends up being education. So in the cybersecurity space, it doesn't mean everybody's an expert in every field, even though they're, you know, they're required to make sure that anything that makes it into the production environment is secure, it's safe, because, you know, they, they are responsible and, you know, essentially accountable for what gets approved to be deployed into the production environment, or at least, you know, making sure that it's, it's as um, it's as less risky as possible. So, I've had the most success with just really partnering them with them very early on in the project, and really the inception of it, shoulder to shoulder the whole way, and doing a ton ton of education as far as like what is really safe or not. Because most of the time when you're doing that, you're putting in a lot of new technology. There's a lot of approved software that goes through a lot of security vetting before it's even allowed. Um, so it takes a lot of education of how it's used. How does this technology work? Where are the communication points? Where's the networking points? Where are the areas that need to be secured? How are keys managed? Um, all of those kind of components. How do we scan it? How do we make sure it stays secure? Uh, it ends up being that is the, if you do that well, getting new technology out into the public sector space works extremely well. And it's actually not incredibly difficult. If you really don't include security tightly in the early onset, um, it is a project that may not see the light of day. 
You mentioned a, a use case earlier that kind of struck me around border security. And I think when a lot of us think border security, we're thinking our, our northern and southern borders. But honestly, just flying into fly, on an international flight, flying into Washington, D.C., landing at Dulles and kind of going through global entry is, is certainly border security and, and speaks to national security. But I think that group doesn't seem like there's there's been the focus on getting some of these technologies out to to people or evolving the way they're using them at least in to keep up with some of the need have you seen a challenge in adoption in that space and and if so do you think this is a market that would certainly have an appetite I, we know the needs there but certainly have an appetite to deploy some of these emerging technologies because it, i mean we've a lot of us are watching the news, but what we see a lot of people that are might be understaffed or overworked or, or overwhelmed, um, and technology feels like it it could really help. So, is there an appetite for that group to be able to deploy that? Uh, yeah, there's definitely an appetite of it. Um, I know that there's uh, you know been discussions and interest and you know you know, RFIs, you know, requests for information where they're really looking at the possibility of using. You know where they've had succession in facial recognition, such as like you know the touchless you know global entry, using that uh, facial recognition to really like being able to screen. It is hard for a person to sit in front of you know a several monitors, you know, as people are crossing the ports of entry and really identifying like, oh, this one is a person that actually is flagged, and you know we like I recognize this person. That is that is not. A good use case that is very that is that is finding in the needle haystack. Uh, it is very it's it's nearly an impossible task to do really well. Um, artificial intelligence with facial recognition, you know, is a is a really good solution to really identify potential, like or at least flagged, you know, uh, you know, risk people, you know, that are high risk, to, you know, to our to our government security. And identifying them quickly as they kind of cross these ports of entry, because they may be using other, you know, identities that that are not, you know, theirs, not originally theirs. So uh, there is definitely an appetite for it, um, but they, they, you know, rightly so, are going to have similar challenges. It is not always going to be a money problem. It's not always going to be a technical problem. Uh, the technology is there to build solutions around, uh, you know, identifying, you know, bad actors crossing ports of entry. The technology exists. It can be put together to build that. Uh, but again, there are going to be other challenges around, you know, is, uh, is it ethical? <laughs> is there bias built into it? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, are those types of things I think are going to be hitting more of a, a policy issue more than a technical issue. I feel like we don't always understand some of the practical applications around artificial intelligence. We just talk about it, AI and tied to data, but I think within the Department of Defense, they're using it in some really cool ways. Can you walk us through some of the practical applications that you're seeing within that department? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the, one of the coolest uh, examples is something I think people can relate to. So the use of drones in warfighter scenarios is, has been around, you know, for quite some time now. And the use of drones is being used by really all of our adversaries. Uh, we also hear about, you know, in, you know, Russians using, um, Iranian drones, you know, over Ukraine. So the use of that technology is pretty much 
unfortunately, it's, a, it's accessible to a lot of others. Like, it doesn't need to be this high level of sophistication and technology to, to deploy a drone. That's like something you can even get commercially and potentially weaponize it. One of the things AI is, you know, being uh, leveraged into is using it for drone defense. So being able to use use radar, you know, using different radar systems, evaluation systems, and then using that image and threat detection AI to identify a drone that is uh, potentially an adversary, and then using that technology to, to automatically deploy another drone in defense and then take out uh, that drone. There's different kind of drone technologies for like how to how, you know how to do the defense, different radar systems, microwave systems. There's even a capture one where you can actually bring it back to you uh, to get those technologies. But using AI for the defense against drones um, is kind of a practical application uh, that is being you know used now, but even um, used more and more. Uh, as it goes on, so that that'll be even another area because it's it's not just even in defense; it's defense against you know even our homeland. If if there are uh, drone defense against you know just our regular facilities, our airports, um, this technology is going to grow. As as we start to wrap up, I'm I'm curious to know not again not just on AI and ML, but all the different types of emerging technologies that are out there. What are some of the predictions that you have for the next for the next year for 2023? in terms of how government perhaps will adopt some of these technologies? What, what outcomes do you think it could drive in the next year? And, and just based on your experience and where government is in certain areas, what level of maturity do you think we could expect um, by the end of, of the year? Ooh, end of the year, one year. It's it's a short timeline. <laughs> if they, I mean, if they, they might not even procure anything in a year, right? <laughs> right. If they if they if the idea starts now, you know, will they get it out and then into the world <laughs> the same year? That's that's pretty. That's a tall order. But I, I would say for twenty twenty three, AIML is man. It is it is getting deeply embedded into so much of the technology, so much of the IT processes, you know, in cybersecurity for in networking for threat detection, anomaly detection, there is just a lot there. I think in the cybersecurity face space will probably be, you know, the biggest jump in adoption and deployments in the government around, you know, definitely doing the anomaly detection, honing in faster to where threats are happening because it's it is it is probably one of our probably most invested in you know areas, and rightly so because it's that the ability to be more intelligent in the attacks uh, are only improving. So I think that space I think is going to see a lot. There's a lot of vendors embedding that into their products as well as far as like network security, anomaly detection, and that's going to happen more. Um, so I think that's a big one for 2023. I think the the health space. Around you know really like even for you know FEMA natural disaster you know deployments uh, in just really uh, um, outbreak response and, and vaccine development um, all of that stuff and is going to improve I think a lot this year already a lot is happening but I think 2023 is another year we're going to see some some big moves there because we're still not really completely out of the woods for COVID-19. It's still, it's still a problem. So that is definitely going to come around more. Uh, I think um, there will be improvements um, using RPA, robotic process automation. There's an AIML component that can be embedded into those processes. I think uh, we're going to see more deployments around those. 
uh, in really supporting kind of, um, uh, you know, workforce augmentation. And it's really to say, hey, uh, we need to do things more efficiently. Um, there's an area where we can easily take, you know, a manual repetitive step out of the equation in a task, and that can be embedded more. So I think labor augmentation will be, an, it's kind of an easier one to tackle. You're not faced with a lot of the, the policy and ethical issues around it, uh, using it, and you're not displacing you know, workers, you're just making them more efficient for the tasks that need to be done at the volume that is more than you have staff for. Yeah, it just feels like, especially coming out of the pandemic, and, and like you said, still still very much uh, around, but we've seen leaders in, in various agencies get the opportunity now to um, learn from some of the things that, that have come over the past couple of years and build strategies for the future based on that, which is exciting. I think um, 2022 was certainly the start, the, the jumping off year for for getting that strategy in place. And I'm, I'm hoping that 2023 is a year where we see some of these things come to fruition, just like you were you were saying. So I I can't wait to see what this, this year is going to bring. I'm going to hold you to those those predictions. Those, those are all going to come true. We'll check back with you in a year, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Hey, uh, James, really appreciate the time today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners? Uh, I will just say that this is... I just, I love talking about it. It's a very exciting space. There's a lot of things that are hitting the market right now, just even in the commercial space that just really points to what the future is going to bring. It is not just in, you know, in the private space, but it's in the public sector. There is a lot of new technologies that are happening and some really big leaps forward, uh, like that are happening right now, just even within the last few weeks. So, uh, I'll just leave you with it. It's an exciting space and more to come. Yeah, I think whenever you want to see the future of what maybe the government technology space is going to be, just just look a few years in advance in the private sector. And that's generally it. I think that that gap is certainly closed. So as you mentioned, it's a really cool time to be in this space because the, the adoption is there. The appetite is there. I think the leadership is in place. And again, I think this, this next year or so is going to be uh, really telling and really exciting to uh to be working in in the space so hey james thank you again so much for for joining us today learned a lot and appreciate the conversation yeah thanks for having me this has been the government huddle podcast you can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast wherever you access yours and feel free to connect with me on linkedin or twitter at chittister thanks for listening guys bye for now